The Right Hook Podcast. Make business sense on the road with the Mitsubishi Outlander Business, the two-seater SUV with low BIK, 200 euro VRT and a five-year warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Happy Wednesday. George Hook here uh, with The Right Hook on Newstalk. Here are some of the best bits that you might have missed on today's programme. Shane Coleman is in the studio, News Talk's political editor. Um, he's worried, Shane, about the change in sort of uh, the demogra- political demographics of democracies around the world. Yeah, I am, George. Um, I, I hope I'm able to articulate what my instinctive worry is. And I'm just, I mean, look around the world today. You have a vote tomorrow on whether or not Britain should leave the EU. Now, I'm sorry, nobody can convince me for a second. That isn't absolute madness. Five years ago, it would have been laughed out of court, the idea of that. And we're hoping common sense will prevail, but there's a very real prospect that it it won't. Well, it's going to be interesting. I'm going to go to a polling station tomorrow as we're broadcasting from London for the next two days. It'll be really interesting to talk to people coming out of the polling station to get a feel of of what they're taught. But, see, I think it's part of a trend that we're seeing with the rise of Trump uh, in America, with in in Scandinavia, where you have the right the, the the rise of the right in Austria, where we were very close to having a, a president elected from a party formed by by ex Nazis. We've got a, a fair degree of demagogues, if I can use that phrase now, uh, of our own. Yeah, uh, but we've got there. different demagogues to everybody else. And because they're on the left rather than on the right. Well, they're on the hard left, yeah. And and they are also... The I, don't, I don't see a huge difference, I have to say. I've between never, Nigel I, Farage and well, I've, uh, Paul Murphy. I've never Murphy. seen a massive difference between hard left and hard, hard right. I think they use the same principles apply. I think... Uh, and I'm not I'm not singling out, singling out Paul Murphy when you, you use his name, but I'm talking about what we're seeing at the moment is emotion taking over fr- from, from reason. It's the politics of, of anger, it's populism, it's easy solutions, it's right. pay, pay for nothing. Um, no, I think you're wrong, I must say. You think I'm wrong? Yeah. In what, what, what well, I, 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 in that, I wouldn't include England in, or Ireland in the countries you chose. Like you chose the United Kingdom, America, Sweden and France, for argument's sake, right? Now, there are a lot of others we could choose as well, like Denmark, like Portugal. There's a lot of countries where this rise the right. But if you look at those four, they are all fueled by fears of uh, migration. They're all fueled by, like the British, not illegal immigration or not immigration from Syria or whatever, but immigration from the other 26 Mm. or 27 countries that is set to... uh, I, I agree... France, Marie Le Pen, uh, Sweden, uh, like you, I don't know whether you watch Walland or, um, uh, but the fellow wrote those books, initially wrote the book. Henning Mankel, yeah. Yeah, because of of worry on unrestricted uh, immigration into Sweden. I accept accept immigration is not a factor here, but I, I do think there are many other similarities. I think that kind of demagoguery the 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 easy solutions to a degree uh, and the whipping up of sort of bogeymen if you like i mean the the eu being the classic bogeyman germany being the classic bogeyman the the hatred of the political elite the uh, the so-called political elite the so-called political establishment the men in suits who are traitors that kind of terminology is not unique to ireland you see that across all countries. It's what Trump is building his campaign on. That's why I'm not sure. I, I accept the politics of the left are very different from the politics of the of the far right. But in terms of the methods they use and the language they use and the type of politics that we have today, I'm not so sure there is a big difference. And I, I don't think there's much room for rational argument and debate anymore. And I do think at the moment, if you want to talk about Ireland at the moment, I think there is a distinct uh, argument emerging or a, a sentiment that people should pay 
for nothing anymore and that uh, there should be the only taxes that should be paid are by the ultra wealthy now who those ultra wealthy are uh, you'll get disagreement on and whether or not you can get enough money from the ultra wealthy I think is a, is another thing altogether now I'm not saying that these that this has been caused by nothing I think there are genuine grounds for grievance I think politics has done a bad job in many ways over the the last 20 years. I think there is legitimate frustrations there uh, among people. And there probably is a feeling, and you see it, that the the elites are that the ultra-wealthy have emerged from the crash unscathed. You know, you see some of the same names re-emerging virtually unscathed. And that is obviously deeply frustrating. The thing is that... In 1945, the world essentially said this can never happen again. The idea of of, of one country, well, two, Austria and Germany, um, uh, where uh, 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 a very charismatic leader in the shape of Hitler whipped up the Jews as the fall guys. And as a result, you had the Holocaust and World War II. You are now seeing... Exactly that, that they, that there yeah, is, I, I, that people can actually get elected by whipping up a fear. Yeah, I, I, I just want, you know, I want to be... I want to be careful here, George, because I think when you start mentioning uh, when you start mentioning the Nazis and so on, I think people quite rightly switch off and say, "Ah, oh, come on, that's that." There, there is no comparison, and I want to make that clear. There is what do you no, mean there's no comparison. There is no. I don't think there's any comparison. We're not talking about what happened in '94. What I'm talking about. Oh, no, we're talking about the ability. You use the word bogeyman. Um, the the ability of uh, people to whip up yeah. uh, a reaction against bogeyman. Yeah, no, that that certainly does exist. I just think when you start talking about the Nazis, people understandably switch off and they say, "Oh, that that's a ridiculous comparison." I mean, Trump uses the, that those very tactics of you know whipping up anger against the against the elites. Uh, and and building on that very real frustration that is there among white blue collar or workers, and he plays that magnificently. I would I think he plays it really dangerously. And will get elected. Well, I I hope he does. I genuinely hope he does not get elected. And that's not because I'm sort of a, some kind of uh, liberal uh, out of touch. It's because I despise the type of politics, the type of aggressive. I want to punch his lights out. Uh, type politics the the, the kind of mob rule that I think there are slight echoes of I I, I wouldn't go as far as as what's happening I think there are slight echoes of that about our politics uh, at the moment I think we saw some but and I'll I'll anticipate the text coming in already I think we saw some but in in some in a minority of the protests uh, in relation to the water charges for, for example I'm not talking about the the, the organised street protests that took place in Dublin. I'm talking about some of the, the sort of fringe elements of that. There's an, you see it on social media. There is an aggression. There's an intimidation. We've seen politicians get get threats. Um, it, I think it, I actually think, I think we in the media are part of the problem. I think we have contributed to the cynicism about politics and the scepticism about politics that's there. We have played for ratings. We love politicians like Trump and some of the, no, some of the politicians here. You see, part of the problem also is that um, somebody once said the patriotism was the last refuge of a scoundrel. Okay, I think it might have been Sam Johnson or something mm-hmm. like that. I happen to think that what we have seen is the, actually the decline in patriotism mm-hmm. because with the decline of nation states, you know, very soon you're going to see a situation if Britain, if migration to Britain continues uncontrolled and in 20 years' time there are 85 million people uh, in Britain. 85 million is the projection, then the Englishman will actually be a minority. Yeah, so therefore... I, I, I don't... I, I, I don't... I don't I, sorry, I just don't buy that argument. You don't I, buy the nation state. You don't buy patriotism. You don't buy we are Irish and yeah, this you know what? is what we are. But sorry, I do buy that. But you know, like who's one of the best players ever to put on an Irish jersey in this country over the last 40 years? Paul McGrath. You know, he is he is the son 
of of an immigrant. He's every bit as Irish as any other player who's put on the greasy. I don't buy. I'm sorry. I just do not. I don't buy that argument, George. Uh, and you look at what I mean. You look at what's happening in the UK. I'm sorry, Boris Johnson. There is a very real prospect that he could be the next Prime Minister of Britain. Ten years ago, twenty years ago, that would have been unthinkable. It is like. You know what politics is like now? It's like Celebrity Big Brother. Whoever gets the highest ratings is more likely to be successful than someone who actually is coherent and rational and sensible and moderate. The guy is a buffoon. And he's... I I, I never... I actually think he's a dangerous buffoon now in in terms of how he's tried to play uh, this, this referendum. Where I think he's put his personal ambition before what's actually good good for Britain. I don't think that could have happened 20 years ago. But it's it, happening now. All right. It, it, the reason Boris Johnson exists and the reason Boris Johnson uh, is uh, doing so well is because Cameron, and particularly Corbyn, Corbyn has been invisible in this campaign. That is part of it. There's another. So therefore, no, sorry, there's, you, George, there's, there's, there's a vacuum. Yeah. There's a vacuum that can be filled. Yeah, but hang on. Sorry. The reason, one of the reasons, also the reason he's doing it is because he is box office. Because the media have decided, good old Boris, what crack he is. I'm sure he's great fun. Sure, he'll, you know, he'll he'll tr- try and do some kind of trick or a stunt. It'll go horribly wrong. We'll all laugh at him. He'll laugh at himself. Sure, he's a great fella. The media, we, I think we in the media, I don't think we question, we inter- we interrogate those ah, politicians. You're very to unfair to your profession. You're very unfair to your profession. Of course we do. I don't think we do. I actually don't like we have TV. there's a vacuum sorry, to come back to, to come, is there a vacuum we well, there t- must well, be sorry, a vacuum because all TVs. these guys are filling it whether it's Trump or Marie Le Pen or Boris Johnson or whatever they're filling a vacuum caused by it wasn't it wasn't Milton uh, it's the fellow whose statue uh, is outside Trinity College Dublin Edmund Burke Edmund Burke said for men, evil to yeah. triumph all it needs is men of goodwill to do nothing. And that's precisely what's happening around the world. There is a vacuum and people are fearful because they don't know who to trust. Yeah. But but do we not have a responsibility as well as voters? All right. Do we not to, to, to actually examine what people are saying to look beyond slogans and, and easy solutions? Like there are TDs in the doll at the moment, George, who are quite open about the fact that they effectively want to overthrow the system. Now, that's fine. That's legitimate if that if that's what they want to do. But let's not pretend there's anything else at play here. That's what their goal is. And I think we need, we in the media, and the electorate needs to call them out on that. the media up, because you're wrong. Oh, in what way am I wrong? Well, like, the people make decisions. Do you, are, you, like. do you, do you, are you honestly going to tell me that, that Boris Johnson or Donald Trump is treated the same way by the media as David Cameron or, or, Hillary, or Hillary, Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Because they're not. Different rules apply. And I think the same rule, I think it's the same with the establishment parties in inverted commas uh, in, in Ireland and the anti-establishment parties up until now. I think that may be starting to change. But it, no, I I still believe that there is, no, it's very difficult to work out what it means to be Irish, what it means to be British, what it means to be German. It's this whole thing that, and, and the EU, I have to say, will, I think history will judge the EU very harshly. That Germany be, and... Because and we've had German, 70, 80 uh, years of, of absolute peace and, and relative harmony. Like what happened? But we would have had it anyway. Like after nineteen forty-five, we were never going to go back. Sorry, George. With respect, you're 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 falling into the classic trap that is prevalent today of assuming everything will continue rosy and we can do whatever we like and we can take whatever risk and we can elect any we can elect any head case and things will go on regardless that is not the answer I thought Brenda Power nailed it on 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 television on Cutting Edge she said the way to defeat a bad argument is with a better argument. And there are yeah, very see, few I, I, better arguments around because there are very few people who can put the better argument. No, see, I, I disagree with that. We because, just have sorry, ciphers No, now no, hold, G- George, they're, they're the, the rational, calm 
arguments are not being heard. There is no appetite for them. There is no appetite for telling the truth or saying, you know what, there is no easy solution Hold to this. Hold on. Hold on. Like... You're blaming the media that the media won't cover it. Fine Gael lost this election and they did lose it catastrophically. Don't mind their incumbent. They about lost the election. election. No, the but election. they did not. They didn't tell the truth. They didn't say to people, listen, we're going to do this. Instead of which they engaged, they engaged in auction uh, politics. I, 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 think you, I, think you, I think you raise a very good point. I think the political narrative has been set in this country by the hard left and the other parties are, are following that. The other parties, instead of standing up to it, the other parties are rowing in with that and trying to compete with that. I think that is a fair point and I think that is a dangerous game that they're playing. All right. Uh, that was News Talks political editor Shane Coleman. Um, certainly, uh, you're either with him or against him. That's for certain. Uh, roughly on the text messaging 50 50. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. Mitsubishi Motors.ie. It would be hard. Um, to avoid knowing that uh, Rory McIlroy has pulled out of the Rio Olympics about his fears uh, of the Zika virus and the possibility of the damage it might do uh, to him and his partner in terms of raising a family. Uh, David Wolodczynski is one of the outstanding Olympic historians and uh, his book on the history of the Olympics is just a must-have book for anybody uh, who is an interest in that uh, four-year uh, celebration of sport. David, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Um, normally, we have countries, by and large, pulling out of the Olympics on political grounds, whether, you know, it was the black nations in Montreal or the, the, the Americans in Moscow and then the Russians in Los Angeles and so on. We haven't had, I don't think, to the best of my knowledge, I, I, I don't think we've ever had an athlete, and we've had more than one, of course, pull out of the games because of health concerns. No, this is definitely uh, something new. The the only thing that we've had close was not so much in the Olympic Games, but in the Youth Olympic Games, uh, which were held in China a couple years ago, <clears throat> and it was during the Ebola crisis. So the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, ruled that athletes from Ebola, uh, um, you know, Ebola-affected nations could compete in the Youth Olympic Games, but not in water sports or combat sports. Okay. And so they eliminated three athletes, total three athletes, but we've never had a situation in the Olympics. Now, we we have had um, a female athlete pull out already, isn't that so, because of, of fears of pregnancy? Well, it, it's hard to say how many have actually, how many athletes have actually pulled out uh, because of Zika. I mean, we certainly had the golfer Mark Leshman and uh, the American cyclist uh, T.J. Van uh, Garderen say that because of you know pregnancy uh, considerations, family considerations, they wanted to pull out. Most other people have been vague about why they're actually pulling out without actually coming out and saying with Zika yeah. until McElroy. I mean... They're, nowadays, the Olympics, I mean, when you, in your wonderful books, when you talk about the Olympics from Athens in 1896 and go forward, it's very difficult to compare um, 48 London, 52 Helsinki or 56 Melbourne with the Olympics of, of, of this century because, because of professionalism and so on. But the... The Olympics kind of trumps everything. So when the WHO does, as it did, issue a warning about Zika, uh, the Olympics, the, the show must go on, as it were. Isn't that so? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. In particular, if you notice, the people who are showing concern, obviously those who are involved in a pregnancy, but also it appears to be the ones who want to pull out are the ones who make a big living at sport. You're not seeing athletes from canoeing or taekwondo pulling out. The Olympics is their big shot at the, the height of their career. 
Uh, and so they're definitely willing to take the chance, which I might say is fairly slim to actually uh, contract Zika or to even have you know, bad symptoms from it. And, but th- those who are making millions, uh, you know, pounds, uh, they're the ones who are going, well, maybe I shouldn't do this, tennis players, golfers, basketball players. Yeah, we're going to be talking to an expert on, on that sort of disease a little mm-hmm. later on. Uh, but the issue with the Olympics, um, I mean, I remember in 72 in Munich when, when the Israeli athletes were murdered, mm-hmm. The Olympics stopped for 24 hours, whereas many of us felt the Olympics should have stopped full stop because of the nature of the thing. That's what I mean by there is a sense about the International Olympic Committee that the show must go on irrespective. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I have to say, as somebody who's Jewish, that uh, I thought the Olympics should have gone on. I'm never a big fan of Avery Brundage who was the head who made that decision. He's an awful person. But in this case, I agreed because to have canceled the Olympics would have been a tremendous victory for the terrorists. Okay. And that was my, my feeling about that. But you're, you're right. There is this show must go on. Um, having said that, uh, the 1916 Olympics were canceled because of World War, as were the 1940 and, and 44. But it's only been World War that has caused the Olympics to be canceled. Yeah, um, the, the the issue of golf, though, I mean, again, somebody like, and, and um, just for the listeners, like your books are, are works of extraordinary scholarship on the mm-hmm. history of the Olympics. Um, when you look, and you don't have to go all the way back to Athens, but there were sports which were, you saw them as absolutely intrinsically Olympic sports. Track and field was such a wonderful week. And then the other week was invariably swimming. And then linked through that, you had boxing and wrestling and weightlifting and all these sports where uh, those of us who loved the Olympics got really excited about it. Um, It's hard to fit golf into that, though. I know. And, well, you know, golf, the last time golf was in the the Olympics was 1904. So I would have thought, yeah, it would be nice to be in the Olympics for the first time in 112 years in your sport. And, you know, having said that, though, take a look at tennis. Tennis was out of the Olympics for more than 60 years. And when it came back in the 80s, people went, oh, this is silly. Why would anybody want to play? And then Steffi Graf won, you know, won the gold medal and afterwards said that was the greatest moment of her career. And when, you know, Steffi Graf said that, other, other big pros, uh, professional tennis players went, wait a minute, maybe we should take this more seriously. And I could see over a period of years where that might happen with golf. Also, one thing that could happen with golf, not in these Olympics, but later, would be switching to a different format, like a team format. But isn't there a sense, it's interesting to talk about a team format, isn't there a sense that we we should really be getting back to the idea that the Olympics are individual sports and that team sports should have less of a role in the Olympics? Yes, I agree with you there. Mind you, rugby is going to be back in, <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, even though it's rugby sevens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I agree with you. It is more the individual sports, which I find interesting. Uh, though, um, you know, know, some of them can be quite exciting. Uh, And, you know, the the International Olympic Committee did face this problem back in 1992 when the Olympics were in Barcelona, and it was uh, decided to uh, kick out Yugoslavia to uh, support the United Nations uh, sanctions against Yugoslavia. But the IOC made a decision that this wasn't really fair to athletes. And so what they did was they banned Yugoslavia from team sports and allowed the Yugoslavian athletes to compete in individual events under the Olympic flag. So there's a little wiggle room here and there. All right. Uh, Well, of course, you'll famously remember 1952 Helsinki, when the divided Germany uh, had to put one team in to represent the whole of Germany. So uh, the the border between East and West, Germany, in terms of the Olympics, just didn't exist. Yeah, that also that happened for a couple Olympics, and then the same thing happened, uh, although it's somewhat forgotten, between South Korea and North Korea in uh, 1992. They actually had a, a, well, they didn't have the one team, but they did march together in the opening okay. ceremony. Okay, well, um, our best chance of a medal, and I hope the other Irish athletes 
It won't mind me saying so, um, would appear to have gone with the departure of Rory McIlroy on health grounds. That was uh, the Olympic historian David Wolodzinski speaking to me um, from America. And if you haven't got his book uh, and you're interested in the Olympics, which will be on television in a matter of weeks, buy the book. It'll make watching the Olympics so much more fun. Now, earlier today, I, I spoke to an Irish Olympian, marathon runner Jerry Kiernan, who was running in that famous marathon that John Tracy got a silver in Los Angeles. And uh, here's Jerry Kiernan's reaction. Well, my reaction, George, no surprise. Um, I opened my iPad this morning and first item in the news was saying that he was concerned about the Zika virus and decided uh, not to make the trip to Brazil. I mean, it was pretty much signposted a few weeks ago. He said more or less the same thing as well. So uh, there is no surprise there. I don't think, George, his heart uh, would have been in the Olympics. He has his own Olympics. He's five or six, six events he would put he would put way ahead of the Olympics. And unless the Olympics, George, is the apotheosis or the acme of, of, of your particular sport, then it's a sport that should not be in the Olympics, which, of course, is a side issue. So I would say the Olympics is not a big issue. Whether he was interested in playing golf for us or not, that's another issue entirely. I suspect he was lukewarm about the whole thing. So no surprise there, George. Yeah, but Jerry Kiernan, um, that that is the point. Um, uh, Andy Murray would prefer Wimbledon to an Olympic gold medal. McElroy would prefer the the Open Championship to an Olympic gold medal. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, every single, particularly athlete, but a ton of sports, wrestlers, boxers, uh, all sorts of sports, for them, they've spent four years with the Olympics as their focus and nothing else. Uh, golfers and, and tennis players haven't spent four years focusing on the Olympics. Not at all. Uh, George, everything you say is absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, golf, tennis, football, rugby sevens, there's a bunch of sports in the Olympics right now and they should never be there at all. It's gone too unwieldy. But on the other side of the kind, then, George, I saw an interview of a young swimmer from Britain and when she was asked about the Zika virus, she says... I don't care about the Zika virus. She says, the Olympics is what I have been swimming for for the last 10 years, and I'm going regardless. And in any case, George, let's face it, the Zika virus in August time is a bit of a confection, really. There is not going to be an issue uh, over the Zika virus in August. Having said that, Jerry, I mean... personally, Personally, George, I actually think... It's a convenient excuse to hang one's hat on if one doesn't really want to go to the games. All right, well, that was uh, marathon runner Jerry Kiernan, uh, and he was pretty uh, strong about it and, and came to the point. Now, we've talked to Olympic historian David Walachensky to mar- marathon runner Jerry Kiernan, but, of course, it is a virus after all, and McElroy is using that, uh, uh, suggesting he's fearful. Now, Dr. Ronnie Russell is uh, Associate Professor of Microbiology at the Moyne Institute for Preventative Medicine at Trinity College Dublin joins me in the studio. Uh, Professor Russell, welcome to the program. Good afternoon, George. Uh, just one point that Jerry made there, and after all, Jerry is a layman and not an expert like you are. He, he said the Zika virus in August. He actually said is a confection. Uh, does, like, yeah, does August make a difference? Yeah, August is uh, basically Christmas time <laughs> down <laughs> south. It's in the southern hemisphere, so we're at the the lowest ebb of mosquito activity at that time of year. And even though this golf course, the Olympic golf course, is actually situated in the middle of a large salt marsh with a lagoon in front of it and a lagoon behind it, <laughs> okay. um, it there's really not much uh, chance of mosquitoes at uh, that time of year. All, all right. Now, the mosquito, of course, carries all sorts of things. And the whole thing about malaria going back donkey's years was we wiped out the mosquito and therefore we wiped out malaria by and large and then we had better pills and so on. But this mosquito, primarily in Brazil, but now increasingly moving north, um, carries the Zika virus. What is the Zika virus? Well, the Zika virus is uh, it's an arborvirus, which is uh, one of a group of viruses that cause flu-like symptoms generally. 
that includes dengue virus and chikungunya virus. These have been around for quite a long time. In fact, Zika has been around since uh, 1947, just after the Second World War. And um, it has basically spread where the mosquitoes spread. Uh, there are four main types of mosquito involved in transmission of all of these. And uh, these have waxed and waned over the years. The one that's uh, currently carrying this virus carries a few others as well, including malaria. Yeah, but the threat, as I understand it, is in pregnancy because what it then does is to create a, 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 a catastrophically damaged yes. child. Isn't that right? Yes. Um, it affects the central nervous system. It affects the stem cells that will develop into brain and nervous tissue. So if it... Uh, affects a fetus in the first three months or six months, it will actually target those those tissues themselves and will cause damage. And then we get uh, malformation of skull and everything else. But um, in adults where uh, they suffer from maybe immunocompromised state, they also can suffer from Guillain-Barre syndrome. And that's just been more or less concluded within the last month. But... Uh, the WHO, if not calling for the 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 uh, cancellation of the Olympics, it did issue a pretty strong warning, did it not, about going to Rio? Because like there are something like about five thousand catastrophically damaged babies now in Brazil as a result of the virus. The statistics uh, are tossed around a lot. There are actually about seven and a half thousand reported cases. Of those. One and a half thousand have been confirmed to have actual microcephaly. Okay. And of that, only 270 odd have actually been proven to have the Zika virus present. There's a lot of work to be done on that yet, but uh, there are a lot of other problems uh, in addition to Zika virus causing these yeah, effects. Yeah, but I mean, women don't find out they're pregnant until whatever time, yeah. you know, a couple of months or whatever it happens to be. So you could have an athlete who goes to Rio, doesn't realise she's pregnant, then gets bitten by this mosquito and then catastrophe. Yes. Is that right? Yes, uh, that's uh, quite correct. And the, the Zika virus... Um, when it's uh, present, when it's injected in large amounts by a, a mosquito bite, it, it takes two or three days before anything actually happens or shows. And in some people, in the majority, in fact, it doesn't show any symptoms at all. They don't know for quite a long time. And... Um, that uh, is one of the reasons why the warnings are going out. All right. Now, let's get to the specifics in the case of McElroy or any man going down there. My guest, by the way, is the Associate Professor of Microbiology at Trinity College Dublin, Ronnie Russell. Professor Russell, we understand if a woman gets bitten and she's pregnant, the catastrophe that occurs. Now, what happens if a man gets bitten and he then attempts to conceive a child with his wife or partner? Well, um, if a man is bitten, um, he may not show any symptoms at all. Um, there have been no reports of a non-symptomatic man transferring the Zika virus to his partner. Uh, sexually or through bodily, bodily fluids. If he does show symptoms, then uh, it is possible for transfer in the semen or via blood or saliva, yeah, sure. etc. Even urine will carry it. And um, the advice is basically if you're unsymptomatic and you've been there and you've been bitten by mosquitoes, practice safe sex for about two months. And if you do show symptoms and uh, you think that you've had uh, a Zika infection, practice safe sex for about six and, months. And, and, and okay, so it, this doesn't live with you forever then. There is a timeline on this. There is. And, uh, well, no, there is no standard person. Everybody's different of and course. they will react differently. But generally speaking, about six months probably. Now, Jerry Kiernan 
very critical, really. And understandably, you know, I, I, I can't speak for Rory McIlroy, but I suspect with the Open Championship coming up, he'd prefer to win the Open Championship maybe than an Olympic gold medal. It's quite yeah. different for someone like Jerry Kiernan, a marathon runner whose whole entire life would have been aimed at winning an Olympic gold medal. So there is a difference. But because we can't discuss Rory McIlroy's thoughts or views, or whatever, except he's made them plain. He is concerned for the possible child that he might conceive. Does he not have a case? Um, he would have a case, but there are various other facts that I would put into the equation, and those are that he went on holiday to the Barbados about nine weeks ago with his partner, which is one of the zones which is red alert for Zika. Really? Yeah. I actually, WHO, I understand, told you Zika has now reached Spain, in fact. Yes. But not Portugal for some extraordinary reason. Yeah, well, uh, it depends on where the mosquito actually gets to. And um, if the mosquitoes that are endemic in the area, a slightly different type of mosquito starts to carry it there, it will spread. Uh, so are you suggesting that if somebody came to you, let's keep it neutral for the moment. Sure. If somebody came to you and said, listen, I'm, I'm going on a two uh, country holiday. I'm going to go to Barbados and Brazil. You wouldn't see much difference in terms of risk between those two countries. Um. I would say that the risk is changing all the time. It's actually declining as we go along. Declining? As the, the winter oh, approaches of course, yes. and the mosquitoes recede. But um, I would say that uh, the alerts that cover the areas are probably much the same. And the warnings on the European Centers for D Disease Control uh, charts are equal for both places. So there are obviously locations in Brazil. There are hot spots. Yeah, and one of the things, the, the aforementioned climate change, of course, as, as we now are getting climate change and places are getting warmer than they were before and so on, there yeah. are probably countries now, like Spain, Europe, where uh, this kind of mosquito previously never existed and is now turning up. So yes. if, 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 for argument's sake, Ireland, if, if there was dramatic climate change for us, we might well have the mosquito then at some point in the indeterminate future. Well, we've seen some examples of that in the past where, uh, for example, chikungunya virus, uh, which is very similar, found its way into Italy in old tires that were imported from the US. Um, we've seen Madeira, which was free from uh, dengue fever, for example, and Zika for a long time, has now started to produce some of these uh, viruses and um, there were oh, somewhere around a thousand cases of dengue there this year. I have to say, Professor Russell, based on this worrying uh, demographic, Ballybunion would appear to be <laughs> the holiday choice. My thanks to my guest, the Associate Professor of Microbiology at the Moyne Institute for Preventative Medicine at Trinity College, uh, Professor Ronnie Russell. Lots more to come here on The Right Hook. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie in the studio with me now is I'm joined by J.M. Berger, who is a fellow at George Washington's University Programme on Extremism. Professor Bergman? Uh, sorry, Bergman, I shouldn't say that. Berger, where did that come from? Is it Professor, Doctor? No, just, just Mr. Just Mr. <laughs> All right. Um, why are you in Ireland? I am here for the Vox Paul uh, Conference on Online Extremism at Dublin City University. So they're going to have a great group of people coming together to talk about the current state of research on... Well, what is the current... I mean, when we talk about online extremism, and I have to tell you that my only knowledge of it is a book written by an author called Frederick Forsyth, uh, and a young American was turned by uh, videos online from an ISIS-type group. But we all think that ISIS is infecting everybody through online. Is that true? 
It has been true, although it's less true now. So Why is that? Why less true now? Twitter has started to crack down on them. Twitter is their favorite platform. Uh, they also use Facebook and YouTube, but those companies have pretty robust rules about what kind of content you can put on. You can't put on hate content. You can't put on violent content. Uh, Twitter has held out. It's a younger company than those two, so it's taken them longer to get there. But now they really are starting to enforce their rules against that kind of content. So what we've seen is like in two years, the ISIS's presence on, on Twitter has gone down by about 96%. 96%. Now, at the same time, given that they're limited to 140 characters on Twitter, how does the ISIS let's call him recruiter or propagandist or whatever, how does he get his message across in 140 characters? What's he saying? Well, they to some extent, they link out to other content. So you link to a video that somebody watches oh. or something that they read. But Twitter, because of that limit, it's it's more like having a conversation than other kinds of social media. So it's, it's really, and that's one of the things that's very appealing about it that I like about it when I use it. Um, you know, you because you can't just go on and on and on, it's a back and forth. So it's... Yeah. Now, you're at George Washington University, which is in Washington, D.C., yes? Yes, I'm, I'm based in Boston, though. Okay. Now, the, the, but your work is the study of um, extremism online. Uh, is, there some, is there extremism other than? ISIS. Oh, yes. Uh, there's a lot of it. Uh, right now, uh, white supremacists are on their way up. They These are, are the guys in Montana or whatever. Yeah, around the world, unfortunately. Okay. Um, but uh, there are certainly some of them in Montana. Uh, yeah, they're, they're right now they're doing a lot better than ISIS because they don't have the same pressure on them. They're not getting suspended as quickly. Um, and they're really making their presence felt in, in the United States and in Europe, partly because of the political climate is is getting them riled up, so. But, I mean, is this just a product of the 21st century that this, when you embrace technology and instant communication and all these sort of good things, you do get the good with the bad? Yeah, well, I mean, historically, anytime a new communications technology comes up, extremists are, are among the first people to use it. Uh, with social media, there's a lot of, you know, the way it's structured, it favors people who are extremists. It favors somebody who's obsessed with a single topic. Uh, you can you can get more done. You can find people. Like if, you know, 50 years ago, if you were in the West and you wanted to be a radical jihadist, you would never find one to, to be friends with and to tell you what's going on. And now it only takes a few minutes. The, the question of uh, extremism, though, one of the things, uh, uh, you don't have to cast an opinion on this one, but where I disagree with President Obama, for instance, is that it's like homegrown terrorism. I believe that radicalization is hugely part of that. And so is the Internet um, and, and social media part of that radicalization process, in your view? It is. Uh, you know, what? for many years, extremists couldn't get their message out. They couldn't communicate very well in, in large groups because there's a social stigma and because it's expensive to have a radio station or a TV station. Now, it's very cheap to do that online. Uh, you can do it anonymously. So they're able to do an end run around kind of the protections that we had in place that, that countered that kind of extremist radicalization. But we saw uh, in the last year or so, we saw three young girls, for instance, in Britain, 13, 14, something like that, um, go to the Middle East to, to become jihadists and so on. So clearly they were radicalized. I mean, it, it must be, for you who studies it, it must be pretty terrifying to think that children who do not have the adult facility of realizing not so much right and wrong, but being able to question what's been put in front of them, then they simply ex ex take it as read. They do. Uh, you know, ISIS does try and target young people, children, teenagers. Uh, you know, they, ISIS is... A group that particularly thrives on ignorance and inexperience. So people who are vulnerable, really their radicals, their recruitment process goes after people who are vulnerable in some way.
But that has always been the way. My guest, by the way, is J.M. Berger, a fellow with George Washington University's programme on extremism, who's in Dublin tomorrow speaking at a special conference in Dublin City University on online extremism. What would you be trying to get out of, or what would Dublin City University be trying to get out of tomorrow's conference? Well, we're sharing research mostly. So, you know, social media, for all that it creates these new risks, it also allows us to see things happening in in new ways. So because you can collect so much data, you can collect it in real time, we can see people radicalizing in ways that we never did before. So some of our research is based on that. Some of it is more technical, like, you know, how do we build a – I listened to a conference uh, this afternoon that was about how to do – scan an image and, and say what's in the image. So you, you know, plug it into a computer and the computer figures out, oh, this is a picture of a tank or this is a picture of a gun. So Yeah, but if you assume that there's extremism online, I'm not sure what the op- moderation, let's say, is the opposite of extremism. The moderates are not as active, isn't that so? Well, the trick is most people on social media are find their views moderate. They're exposed to more people, they get a more diverse community, and they tend to be more moderate. For the people who don't, however, that they, they, they get much worse. So, you know, for everybody, most people, it's lifting them up and, and giving them sort of a better view of the world and making them better citizens of the world. But if you're not inclined that way, then social media is very empowering for people who want to dive down into a negative place. But... Social media, uh, if you take Twitter, which I'm looking at here, and there's 176,000 people following me on Twitter, and I look at a couple at random, people are saying things to me or calling me names that nobody in polite society would use. So doesn't social media, therefore have to police itself. I know you're saying it does in the shape of extremism and so on, but it still survives on a basis that um, bullying of children by other children, even at that level, doesn't social media have any responsibility? Doesn't it have any sense of its own personal responsibility here? It, it does. And Facebook takes that very seriously and is really working on it. Twitter has been lagging. And so, you know, there a lot of people are very unhappy with Twitter, not just because of extremism, but because of trolling, like what you're describing. Yeah. That's a big problem in harassment. Women women and people of color get harassed brutally on Twitter. But I, my knowledge of this also, I have to say, is based on my grandsons, okay? Now I discovered that, my, that, that Instagram is now taking the place of Twitter with, with these young people. But, like, they can get a message from somebody. Hopefully they know who that somebody is. But somebody says, how are you? Uh, I'm the attractive girl around the corner. But it might be an attractive girl around the corner. It, it might be somebody far more dangerous. Maybe when Caxton... Uh, developed the printing press, you know, maybe he created a revolution all of his own too. And the guy then when the fellow invented television or whatever, or the telephone, and we feared them all, maybe we won't need to fear Twitter either in due course. I Well, the hope is that, you know, there will be sort of a natural evolution toward uh, more moderate kind of things and safer safer environments to interact. But it's very difficult. What you have right now is you have three companies, Google, Facebook, and YouTube, and uh, Twitter, that are really the primary vehicles for free speech around the world. And But they're not governments. They're not accountable to the public. Uh, they're, they're corporations, and, and they make rules that, that control how this stuff but, happens. But not only do they control free speech, they also are increasingly controlling advertising. So what we're seeing is advertising, which previously went to newspapers, who are an important part of our discourse. If they don't get advertising, they fail. Radio stations are losing less advertising because it's all been funneled into these three giants. I think the the broader media piece will eventually correct itself. I think right now we're in a pretty difficult transition. And, you know, I used to work in newspapers. 
Uh, my wife works at a newspaper, so I'm very sensitive to the to how this you know change is really affecting that industry. Uh, I think that I'm I'm more optimistic that that will take care of itself in over the next few years as people sort of figure out how to make the transition. But I mean, extremism is is like poverty; it's always been with us. But there is a different kind of extremism. I mean, in America, that extremism is made easier because of your lax gun control and so on. But just something like 163 mass shootings um, during 2015, things like this. the attacks then, which are also motivated, you have to assume, by some kind of radicalization. The job that people like you are doing at George Washington University is bringing it to our attention. But and who ultimately, like, it, it seems to be, it's not about free speech anymore. It's just a free for all. That's different. It's a, it's a very messy environment and things are likely to get worse before they get better. The thing on social media is that you can go onto a social media platform and you can access an audience of hundreds of millions of people. And you only need to to convert, you know, 0.0001% of those people and that's 10,000 people, that's 20,000 people and you can be make a huge disruption with that many people operating in in synchronicity. So, you know, it's a game of very tiny percentages, and and I think that we're going to have a very difficult adjustment to that. I think we're going to have some years of unrest and turbulence. So you're glass half empty rather than glass half full then, really, are you? I'm a little bit, yeah. I You know, I, it took me a while to come around with it. When, when social media first came on the scene in 2000 through 2004 and everybody talked about, you know, that it was going to change the world, and I, I was pretty skeptical about that. I felt like this is just a new way to do the same things we were doing before. But, you know, I've really come after looking at it for some years, I've come to the to the conclusion that it is a, a really a sea change, a dramatic change from before. Yeah, I mean, to close, uh, if you look at great despots of history, whether that's Adolf Hitler or Attila the Hun, sorry for picking two Germans, but Attila the Hun or, or Nero or whoever the heck it had been, imagine the damage they might have done to the then world had this sort of extraordinary technological uh, activity been available to them. It would have been a lot different. I mean, you know, we're in a place now where, you know, you've got 100 million people. Facebook has like 1.5 billion users. If you can get onto Facebook and convince 0.0001% of those people that up is down and flying saucers are coming tomorrow, you can make a big splash and change things in the world. Okay. Um, It's an interesting thought. Uh, Tomorrow at Dublin City University, their uh, online political extremist conference, my guest, J.M. Berger, fellow with George Washington University's program on extremism. He based in Boston.